0: reflective history this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org introduction to the philosophy of history by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel 2 reflective history The second kind of history we may call the reflective. It is history whose mode of representation is not really confined by the limits of the time to which it relates, but whose spirit transcends the present. In this second order, strongly marked variety of species may be distinguished. First. It is the aim of the investigator to gain a view of the entire history of a people or of a country or of the world in short what we call universal history in this case the working up of the historical material is the main point the workman approaches his task with his own spirit a spirit distinct from that of the element he is to manipulate here A very important consideration will be the principles to which the author refers, the bearing and motives of the actions and events which he describes, and those which determine the form of his narrative. Among us Germans this reflective treatment and the display of ingenuity which it occasions assume a manifold variety of phases. Every writer of history proposes to himself an original method the english and french confess to general principles of historical composition their standpoint is more that of cosmopolitan or of national culture among us each labors to invent a purely individual point of view instead of writing history we are always beating our brains to discover how history ought to be written This first kind of reflective history is most nearly akin to the preceding when it has no farther aim than to present the annals of a country complete. Such compilations, among which may be reckoned the works of Livy, Diodorus Siculus, Johannes von Müller's History of Switzerland, are, if well performed, highly meritorious, among the best of the kind may be reckoned such analysts as approach those of the first class, who give so vivid a transcript of events that the reader may well fancy himself listening to contemporaries and eyewitnesses. But it often happens that the individuality of tone which must characterize a writer belonging to a different culture is not modified in accordance with the period such a record must traverse." the spirit of the writer is quite other than that of the times of which he treats. Thus Livy puts into the mouths of the old Roman kings, consuls, and generals such orations as would be delivered by an accomplished advocate of the Livian era, and which strikingly contrast with the genuine traditions of Roman antiquity. For example, the fable of Menenius Agrippa, In the same way he gives us descriptions of battles as if he had been an actual spectator but whose features would serve well enough for battles in any period and whose distinctness contrasts on the other hand with the want of connection and the inconsistency that prevail elsewhere even in his treatment of chief points of interest the difference between such a compiler and an original historian may be best seen by comparing Polybius himself with the style in which Livy uses, expands, and abridges his annals in those period, of which Polybius's account has been preserved. Johann von Müller has given a stiff, formal, pedantic aspect of history in the endeavor to remain faithful in his portraiture to the times he describes. We much prefer the narratives we find in old Trudi. All is more naive and natural than it appears in the garb of a fictitious and affected archaism. A history which aspires to traverse long periods of time, or to be universal, must indeed forego the attempt to give individual representations of the past as it actually existed it must foreshorten its pictures by abstractions. And this includes not merely the omission of events and deeds, but whatever is involved in the fact that thought is, after all, the most trenchant epitomist. A battle, a great victory, a siege, no longer maintains its original proportions, but is put off with a bare mention. When Livy, for example, tells us of the wars with the Volsky we sometimes have the brief announcement: this year, war was carried on with the Volsky. Second. A second species of reflective history is what we might call the pragmatical. When we have to deal with the past and occupy ourselves with a remote world, a present rises into being for the mind produced by its own activity, as the reward of its labor. The occurrences are indeed various, but the idea which pervades them, their deeper import and connection, is one. This takes the occurrence out of the category of the past and makes it virtually present. Pragmatical or didactic reflections though in their nature decidedly abstract, are truly and indefeasibly of the present, and quicken the annals of the dead past with the life of today. Whether, indeed, such reflections are truly interesting and enlivening depends on the writer's own spirit. Moral reflections must here be specially noted. The moral teaching expected from history— which latter has not infrequently been treated with a direct view to the former. It may be allowed that examples of virtue elevate the soul and are applicable in the moral instructions of children for impressing excellence upon their minds, but the destinies of peoples and states, their interests, relations, and the complicated issue of their affairs, present quite another field rulers statesmen nations are wont to be emphatically commended to the teaching which experience offers in history but what experience and history teach is this that peoples and governments never have learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it Each period is involved in such peculiar circumstances exhibits a condition of things so strictly idiosyncratic that its conduct must be regulated by considerations connected with itself and itself alone. Amid the pressure of great events, a general principle gives no help. It is useless to revert to similar circumstances in the past. The pallid shades of memory struggle in vain with the life and freedom of the present. Looked at in this light, nothing can be shallower than the oft-repeated appeal to Greek and Roman examples during the French Revolution. Nothing is more diverse than the genius of those nations and that of our times. Johannes von Müller, in his Universal History as also in his History of Switzerland, had such moral aims in view. He designed to prepare a body of political doctrines for the instruction of princes, governments, and peoples. He formed a special collection of doctrines and reflections, frequently giving us, in his correspondence, the exact number of epithems which he had compiled in a week. But he cannot reckon this part of his labor as among the best that he accomplished. It is only a thorough, liberal, comprehensive view of historical relations such, for example, as we find in Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, that can give truth and interest to reflections of this order. One reflective history, therefore, supersedes another. The materials are patent to every writer. Each is likely enough to believe himself capable of arranging and manipulating them, and we may expect that each will insist upon his own spirit as that of the age in question. Disgusted by such reflective histories, readers have often returned with pleasure to a narrative adopting no particular point of view. These certainly have their value, but for the most part they offer only material for history. We Germans are content with such. The French, on the other hand, display great genius in reanimating bygone times and in bringing the past to bear upon the present conditions of things. Third The third form of reflective history is the critical. This deserves mention as preeminently the mode of treating history now current in Germany. It is not history itself that is here presented. We might more properly designate it as a history of history, a criticism of historical narratives and an investigation of their truth and credibility. Its peculiarity in point of fact and of intention consists in the acuteness with which the writer exhorts something from the records which was not in the matters recorded. The French have given as much that is profound and judicious in this class of composition but they have not endeavored to pass a merely critical procedure for substantial history. They have duly presented their judgments in the form of critical treatises. Among us the so-called higher criticism which reigns supreme in the domain of philology has also taken possession of our historical literature. This higher criticism has been the pretext for introducing all the anti-historical monstrosities that a vain imagination could suggest. Here we have the other method of making the past a living reality, putting subjective fancies in the place of historical data, fancies whose merit is measured by their boldness, that is, the scantiness of the particulars on which they are based, and the peremptoriness with which they contravene the best-established facts of history. Fourth. The last species of reflective history announces its fragmentary character on the very face of it. It adopts an abstract position. Yet, since it takes general points of view, for example, as the history of art, of law, of religion, It forms a transition to the philosophical history of the world. In our time this form of the history of ideas has been more developed and brought into notice. Such branches of national life stand in close relation to the entire complex of a people's annals, and the question of chief importance in relation to our subject is whether the connection of the whole is exhibited in its truth and reality or referred to merely external relations. In the latter case, these important phenomena, art, law, religion, etc., appear as purely accidental national peculiarities. It must be remarked that when reflective history has advanced to the adoption of general points of view, if the position taken is a true one, these are found to constitute not merely external thread a superficial series, but are the inward guiding soul of the occurrences and actions that occupy a nation's annals. For, like the soul-conductor Mercury, the idea is in truth the leader of peoples and of the world, and spirit, the rational and necessitated will of that conductor, is and has been the director of the events of the world's history. To become acquainted with spirit, in this its office of guidance, is the object of our present undertaking. This brings us to 3. The third kind of history, the philosophical. End. Reflective history.